0: This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Well, tomorrow we celebrate the the fourth Sunday in the season of Advent here in 2022. Year is almost come to a close. Of course, the liturgical year has just begun. Uh, and we are talking today about that central mystery of Christmas, the incarnation of God becoming man in a very particular way for the purpose of reconciling us back to the Father. And it's a really important concept, and it has been for the church for a number of years, all the way back at the beginning, really in the fourth century, we have just this huge um wrestling with what it means for God to be incarnate in Christ. And there's these Christological controversies that councils are called over. And there's a whole bunch going on at that point in time. But from the beginning of our faith, who Jesus is, is central and important to what we believe. And there are implications as we talk about the implications of our belief on daily life. There are implications to what we believe about Christ, to what Christology we hold. Um, in the way that we live that faith out. And so in order to kind of break that down and, and get a better understanding of it today as we approach the Christmas season and the mystery of Christmas, uh, we ha- we're we going to have a conversation today with Joe Heshmeyer. Now, Joe, this is a really special episode because it's our 21st conversation on air together.
1: Wow. Happy <laughs> so, 21st episode anniversary.
0: From when I first became Catholic back in 2011, you were pretty fresh into this blog of yours called Shameless Popery, which is still one of the best titles ever. Um, And I was entranced by it because there was so much available on the internet that was just kind of surface level catechesis, quick answers um, to complex questions. And and it's nice and it's good to have those summary answers but it just never was enough for me and i loved your blog because it was footnoted and it was you know longer than the 400 a word answer you go into these 200 2400 word expositions on on specific um uh, apologetic topics and so i really appreciated that back then and it helped form me as a young catholic uh, having lived uh, as a christian for most of my life in other traditions it went past those cursory christian answers and really dug deep and you've carried that on uh, throughout your your work uh, first there at the blog and as a seminarian and then as uh, working with the holy family school of faith which i still have utmost respect for and now as a staff apologist over at catholic answers you continue that work and i've learned recently that you're also continuing the shameless popery title now yes. on to a, um, now on to a podcast, uh, tell us a little bit about where this, uh, this came from. I'm, I'm assuming that you were kind of pressured into it as we all are <laughs> saying, Hey, we really need more of this content. Uh, tell us a little bit about the story and where to find that, that podcast.
1: No, that's a great question. So uh, first of all, thank you very much. I, I really, that was, that was beautiful. Um, I was doing a podcast before called the Catholic Podcast, and I was uh, with someone else at the School of Faith first, Chloe Langer, and then Jenny Punsley. But then, when Chloe left, uh, we replaced her, <laughs> and and then when I left, we just said, okay, I think this thing's run its course. Yeah. And I I said then, okay, well, I'd like to uh, get my own podcast, and and you know probably brand it Shameless Popery, and and then kind of continue in that same sort of vein, doing a weekly podcast. And that idea was like March of 2021. Mm-hmm. And then by October I said, okay, I think I'm about ready to do this thing. And then it just came out a year later, you know? And, yeah. and so, I mean, it, it literally just came out, what is that, two weeks ago. So more yeah. than a year later. So it, it actually took way longer than I expected, partly because um, we decided to do video as well as audio. Mm-hmm. And there were conversations back and forth. There are a lot more cooks in the kitchen, which means things go slower than if I was just going solo. But also I think it's going to make for uh, a much better product than if I was just, you know, taking a mic and, and trying to do things on my, on my lonesome. So I think the audio quality will be better. The video quality would be better. Uh, I literally earlier today was just uh, on, on a call with one of the video guys getting all new equipment that he'd sent me and, and him walking me through all of it and sending mm-hmm. tutorials and everything. So it's it's really exciting from a boring technical perspective to have <laughs> a higher quality product. Yeah. But uh, in terms of substance, like the thing that I like doing is the thing that you said, which is take an idea and really dig into it and really flesh out all of the implications of it and uh, really go a lot deeper than than the surface level. And it, And it's difficult because in a lot of uh, media, it's just not that's not the appropriate thing to do, right? You know, whether it's somebody asking you at a, a party or somebody calling into Catholic Answers Live, if you give a two hour answer, <laughs> eyes roll back in the back. Yeah, of exactly. Heads. You know, you're <laughs> never getting invited back to the party, you're never coming back on the show. The host will cut you off, but uh, you know, so this I, I'm not literally doing a two hour answer, but I am doing like a half hour or hour long answer where.
0: This may be why I don't get invited to parties.
1: (laughs) exactly. This is like on like the seventh or eighth spot of why I don't get invited to parties. It gets worse from there. But, you know, it's it's that idea. I like digging deep into these aspects of the faith that so often uh, we don't really see fleshed out. Mm -hmm. And that if you tried to figure out the answer by yourself would probably be a lot of reading and be a lot of work. And so having had the advantage of having done all that reading, having done all that work in, in many of these cases, I get to kind of say, okay, let me break it down in a, you know, accessible way. It's, it's exciting. It's a lot of fun to do. So I know that was probably a much longer answer than you were hoping, but the podcast Shameless Popery" uh, every Thursday, uh, that's that's what we're doing.
0: Awesome. So now let's dig deep into one of these topics, Christology specifically. And yeah. I want to start by examining our our own preconceptions, because I think so often we expect that the the worldview that we have grown up in, that we've kind of marinated in, is, is common. And everyone, mm-hmm. of course, uh, accepts this and understands this. And yet, I think that if we do a little bit of an Ignatian exercise, we're going to find that this isn't necessarily the case. <clears throat> so let's go back to the fourth century uh you and me in our minds and think about this person walking up and saying, well this person that we have all of these writings about this person was really God uh of course it makes sense to us because we've we've been raised Jesus is God that makes sense the three people uh, in one uh, one divine entity um And yet if someone were to walk up to us today and say, well, I'm divine, we would were- right we have places to put them right we we <laughs> yeah. have categories to label them and and so what makes it so di- you know so different for that person to be a first century jew as opposed to someone on the street in new york city today
1: yeah well in in some ways it's not as different as we would imagine i know that mm-hmm. sounds kind of strange to say but you'll sometimes so there are two claims that i've heard that this is kind of reminding me of. One is this, well, how do we know Jesus is God? You know, people were always claiming that kind of stuff back then, uh, argument. Which is, the weird thing is just not true at all. Like find another, you know, the, you look at the founders of the other religions and none of them were like, and by the way, I'm God. That's just not, In that conversation just isn't happening in the same way. Uh, even people who are later in kind of folk religion, given some divine qualities, think about like the Buddha. Uh, doesn't claim those for himself. Didn't Those aren't ascribed by the earliest followers. You know, the first kind of generations of it don't have any sense of that. What makes Christianity really startling is that you see this stuff really right from the start. I mean, you mentioned the fourth century. We can go back much earlier than that. Uh, St. Irenaeus tells a story um, about John, the, the disciple, going into a bathhouse in Ephesus and seeing Serenthus, who was a Gnostic leader, and he, he he rushed out of the bathhouse without bathing, saying, let us fly lest even the bathhouse fall down, because Sorenthus, the enemy of the truth, is within. But what the two men disagreed on was in no small part about the incarnation. Sorenthus said the body was bad, and therefore the incarnation wasn't real. And strangely, he didn't deny that Jesus was God, he denied that Jesus was man. So that's uh, just to make the argument even more confusing, The first major disputes we have are in many cases, not people who say, I don't believe in the divinity of the Lord. They were strangely enough people who said, I don't believe in the humanity of the Lord. And so the early Christians had to really be like, no, no, this guy who is God is also really a man, which is a weirder kind of conversation. But all that's to say, like the Christian claim was as bizarre, as radical, as unique uh, in the first century as it is today. The second thing I'd say in terms of like the, Kind of mythological stuff is that you'll sometimes find people who just say, "Oh, you know, people back then really credulous, like they would just accept any of these kind of claims." But you see a much more skepticism uh, even within the New Testament itself. So think of like Gamaliel, who who stands up and he mentions all these failed messianic movements. Now those other messiahs didn't claim to be God, but what they did claim was that they were, you know, the anointed of God or the messiah sent by God to free the people. And then, you know, he just said, like, wait and see, it's probably nothing. And that was kind of his approach. It's a very modern kind of approach of like, well, a little jaded, a little cynical.
0: And you bring up a a point there that I think we often miss. Because we have this perspective that Jesus is God incarnate Mm -hmm. and that Jesus was the Messiah, we tend to ascribe the concept of Messiah as always having a divine quality. Exactly. But... The Messiah, as you mentioned there, it just means the Anointed One, and so you have these the typology of the Messiah all the way back into the Book of Judges, where you have the person who was anointed by God to deliver the people, who had no divine attributes whatsoever, and so we forget that Messiah and and the divine person are separate attributes of the of of Christ. They're yeah, not, not that's synonymous right. attributes.
1: Yeah, it's funny because the way we use Messiah now means savior. Mm-hmm. and But the word itself, like you said, it means anointed. And so you'd use it for a priest or a prophet or a king. You'd use it for a judge. Uh, and they may have had a role of saving the people. They had a role of leading the people in some way. But certainly the way we think about terms, even like Messiah, you can't unlearn about Jesus Christ. And so he permanently changes what Messiah and its Greek equivalent Christ it means you know, no one hears Christ now and right. thinks the judge, right? I mean, uh, like a judge, they might think Christ the judge, but they don't think uh, every judge being anointed is thus a Christ.
0: So, here we have really kind of a stumbling block, uh, um, a perfect storm of stumbling blocks in the person that's of quite Jesus the Christ. metaphor, uh, <laughs> because you have. You have the God who becomes human, mm-hmm. God who becomes man, takes on uh, human nature and human flesh. You have God, the all-powerful God of uh, Creator God, becoming not only a human but an infant. Um, th- there's a, th- I forget the name of the person who wrote the poem, but there's a poem called "Maker of the Universe" that talks about the the juxtaposition of what it means for God to be human. So the, um, the maker of the universe, uh, as man for man was made a curse. Mm-hmm. Um, talking about the, the, uh, the incomprehensible, incon- uncontainable God being contained in, in a baby. And the, the creator who created the iron in the hills and, and the trees on the hills is the God who was crucified on a tree with nails of iron. Right, so yeah, this this is an incomprehensible thing, but it's important for us to get and to get right, um, as we as we live out the Christmas mystery.
1: Yeah, I think that's that's well said. And although this is more of a Linton observance than a Christmas one, uh, if you're familiar with the reproaches mm-hmm. that we do on Good Friday, it's it's all of that. It's here's what I did for you, and here's what you did to me. And it's, it's a you know, there it's partly to stir up a sense of contrition, but it also can stir up a sense of kind of awe and wonder that you think of, oh, yeah, the creator of the cosmos is lying in a manger. And once you start thinking in those terms that God doesn't leave heaven, but he is suddenly present on earth in a way he wasn't before, uh, that's really kind of mind-blowing. It really changes the whole way we understand. Because I think there's a lot of these things that even as Christians we can we can take for granted and maybe not appreciate the radical nature of it. I mean just to take that one I already alluded to it. I think we often have this idea that Jesus in becoming man sort of switches off his divinity for a while that as a baby, you know, he's he's just a baby. He's a very special baby who's going to be God later. But he's just right now, he's just a baby turned off as, you know, divinity. He'll turn it back on later, maybe at the public ministry of his baptism or something. It's like, no, 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 it doesn't work like that. He is God, even as he's asleep. He's God as an infant. He's got, I mean, he's God in the womb. We see this in John the Baptist's response to him in Luke 1. Uh, And so there's something much more mind blowing than that, that we just don't have... I think the imaginative framework for? Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. even you think about something about just taking the incarnation seriously, and how does Jesus know something? Well, there are some things that he knows in one way, uh, just through being God. I mean, there's everything he knows in that way. But then he also is, there's some real sense in which he has to learn things. Uh, And so how does, you know, how does that work? How does that kind of process work? What do you teach the God of the universe, who knows everything, but still needs to be taught how to tie his shoes or sandals as it were.
0: Or, or let's even just say uh, away from the intellectual framework, he had to within the body, learn how to balance and to walk yeah, and absolutely. get muscle memory. This one who created the muscles has to mature. The one who never changes has to change.
1: It's like test driving your own car, you know, Henry Ford getting in the model T a little bit, but uh, taking it on forever. Cause we don't want to think of it just as like a, uh, uh, a pair of clothes he's putting on. Jesus mm-hmm. comes and is permanently united to our humanity. I heard someone talk about, I, I, well, I, I guess I read someone who said, God is spirit. You know, if you wanted him in his humanity, you had to be back 2,000 years ago. And it's like, no, he's still human. Like Jesus still is fully human now, glorified in heaven. And and so this is, I think, maybe one of the dimensions of the incarnation We don't take seriously, and that's the permanence of it. Mm -hmm. That, you know, when Jesus says, I will not leave you orphans, uh, he's not just promising the Holy Spirit, although he promises that as well. He also uh, says, I will be with you always, even to the close of the age. And he's with us, you know, in the Eucharist in a bodily way, and he's with us in the church in a bodily way, and he's with us even in some sense in the least of these. We could say in a uh, something of a bodily way as well. Um, Not in the same way as the other two, but there's still a real sense in which he's continuing that incarnate presence. So, uh, Tertullian it is, who says that the flesh is now the hinge of salvation. Mm -hmm. And I love that. Like, what Jesus has done here is, well, let, let me just, let me step back and say, Jesus didn't have to do any of this. There were a lot of ways of solving the problem of sin that would not have involved the incarnation and death of our Lord on the cross. Uh, And so Aquinas, looking at all the reasons why he thinks that he did this, one of the ones that he points out is that it actually gives a dignity to humanity that we didn't have before. Like our track record up to Jesus is, you know, well, Adam and Eve, we send in the garden. And then Cain and Abel, you get murdered pretty quickly. You get the whole story of humanity's just terrible inhumanity to one another. Uh, you get the killing of the prophets, you get like the, the total rejection when every time God speaks to his people, we turn our hearts to stone and, and we turn away from Him. And so that's kind of our track record up to this point. And you can imagine a solution where God just says, okay, I found the weak link of the chain. I found the part that isn't working. I'm going to save you guys without any of your help because you've been thoroughly unhelpful so far. Uh, <laughs> but he doesn't do that. Like he, he actually is a loving father. And I mean, I know you've got kids and I know you've probably incorporated your kids in things that would have been twice as fast if you'd just done it yourself. So you know what it's like, like that there's a way in which you lovingly involve a child in a process the child has no business really being involved with. Uh, And and you elevate them to a dignity that they didn't have otherwise. Like you're inviting them into a share in the dignity of adulthood there and they get to have a little taste of it. It gives them a real sense of Oh, wow, that was, you know, that was really special. And it gives him a sense of your love for them. Well, likewise, like that's part of what the incarnation is all about, that Jesus doesn't abandon humanity. He embraces us even more and embraces us in this perfect union. Uh, That's a really, I don't know, it's a really radical way of understanding what's going on here, that this isn't just an important thing to know about Jesus of Nazareth. This is in some way an important thing to know about the human race that we are the race that God became. Uh, and so we should maybe treat each other a little better.
0: Yeah. You, you mentioned the um, the ongoing and perpetual uh, nature, I guess, of the incarnation. I, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with uh, Dr. Lawrence Feingold about the oh. Eucharist some time ago. Uh, he's at Kenrick Lennon. And one of the things he mentioned is that as we, you know, when we think about the Eucharist, we think about, returning to that one sacrifice all the way back mm-hmm. 2,000 years ago. Uh, but he he put it in a different framework. He said the Eucharist that we receive, Christ that we receive, body, blood, soul, and divinity, isn't the Christ on the cross where the body and the blood were separated. It's Christ as he is right now at this mm-hmm. moment, all interconnected body, blood, soul, and divinity as a whole cohesive uh, and he said that if you, if you would have received the Eucharist in that moment when Christ was in the tomb, you would have received a different Eucharist than the one that we receive right now, the present incarnation of Christ, yeah. body, blood, soul, and divinity, as he is in heaven brought to he- to us here on earth.
1: Yeah, it's really remarkable because in a lot of ways what's going on there, and what I'm reminded of is when Jesus shows the wounds in his side uh, to Doubting Thomas, that mm-hmm. yes, it is recalling the cross, but we're not going back. We're not putting Jesus back on the cross when he does that. You know, sometimes the, the misunderstanding of the Catholic view is that we're we're re-crucifying Jesus. Uh, we're, we're putting him back on the cross. And it's like, no, we're recalling what's happened there and entering into that in this radical way. But like you said, and, and like Dr. Feingold said, in the light of the resurrection, that just like, you know, when he's showing Thomas his his pure side is no longer the pure side of a dead man, it's the pure side of a living man who's overcome the grave. That changes the meaning and the power of it. That it changes, I think, how we understand and embrace it. And there's something, I think, just really radical about that. I mean, just take the fact that Jesus has a resurrected body. So, 1 Corinthians, St. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15, that what is sown is a physical body, what is raised is a spiritual body. And so often we have these kind of gnostic ears where we hear spiritual and we think disembodied. but that's not what it means for Paul and it's not what it means for any of the New Testament authors that they don't contrast uh, spirit with literal bodilyness. They contrast with being carnal, like being really fleshly about how you do things. But, you know, Paul's really clear, right? Romans 12, you know, offer to God uh, the sacrifice in your body. This is your spiritual worship. That bodily worship is spiritual worship and vice versa. They're not They're not juxtaposed. Well, likewise here, the spiritual body that Jesus raises from the dead, it's his same old body, but glorified. And I, I mean, maybe people just take that for granted. But I think this is something that we don't have a great enough appreciation for, They think about like all of the ways in which your body feels like a burden, all the ways it fails you, all the ways it lets you down. God's plan of redemption is not, well, let's scrap that thing and upgrade you to a different model. It's let's transform your body so that it's how it's always meant to be. And so you can really glorify God in your body and you're not, it's no longer going to be, I think, weighing you down. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Is it just like that kind of conception that the incarnation says something about? Jesus of Nazareth. It says something about humanity. It also says something about the dignity of the human body uh, in a way that I think is really easy to overlook. Because just like you, you know, you could imagine a, a plan of salvation in which God works around uh, humanity, where you know, salvation from humanity rather than through humanity. Well, likewise, I think there's a lot of forms of spirituality that are really salvation from the body, and some of those have crept into Christianity and. The, the solution is is to say no to that. Like John says no to Serentis in his Gnosticism. It's, no,
0: salvation is in the body. Salvation
1: is through the body.
0: Growing up, I mean, you hear about the glorified body in heaven, uh, that God will give you this this heavenly body. And I, I just assumed that it is a, you know, my body here, this earthly body is left on the ground, and I get a new one up in heaven. And the whole thought of the resurrection of this body was something I didn't ever consider until well into adulthood, well into now being a Catholic and looking at it through a different perspective that, that I have to take care of this body and be a steward of this body because this is the one that's getting resurrected. Yeah. Um, you, so- you were, you were mentioning there that the dignity of the body, but uh, and I think that this is uh, an Eastern father and I apologize that I don't, I can't immediately call it to mind, <clears throat> but talking about, Christ coming into humanity and becoming incarnate was as much to raise human nature of being capable of sharing divinity as it does in his person so that we could be sharers in the divine life. That almost like oil and water, they don't mix together. They have There has to be some other agent in there to allow them to work together in recipes and whatever. Uh, the same is true that, that Christ is that element that allows that human nature and that divine nature to be shared in some way that that are not of of themselves capable.
1: Yeah, I think it's a really beautiful way of understanding it. Uh, and I, I'm not sure which father you're talking about. I know there's a lot of talk about similar ideas, you know, God became man, so man can become God, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But again, this isn't a very... A bodily way in a way that preserves both our bodilyness and our humanity and doesn't lose it in sharing in this divine life that you actually become more human, not less human. Uh, that's, I think, like you said, it's a hard thing to get your head around because I think there is this idea that in heaven, you just like chuck it. And then, you know, in the resurrection, you get a new body and it's like, no, that's not, that's not it. Now we can talk about kind of the, what that looks like, but St. Paul's image is the clearest scriptural evidence. Again, this is 1 Corinthians 15. He thinks about it as like a seed you plant and that grows. Now what you see, you know, you you plant like corn or something and then when the ear emerges and you've got this whole plant, it looks totally different than, than what you planted. But it is still the same thing, just grown up and transformed. That the bodily resurrection towards which we look in anticipation and hope is for our bodies now Not as they currently are, thanks be to God, but uh, grown up and transformed. And I think there's something so beautiful about that and that I hope makes sense of, like the church is weird about bodies. Like the church is weird about bodies in a lot of ways, like to just give a few. Like we keep relics of the saints Mm -hmm. or we have very strong opinions about like burial being better than cremation or, you know, all of these things that seem like just kind of irrational sort of hangups. But once you even, you know, the the concern about, like, sexual morality properly understood is partly about the dignity and the theology of the body. Uh, all of those things kind of fit there. That It's not that, you know, we care about sexual ethics because the body is bad, but because the body is good.
0: We're talking today with Joe Heschmeier, staff apologist over at Catholic Answers. He also blogs and podcasts under the title Shameless Popery. We're talking today about that central mystery of Christmas, the season that we're approaching, the mystery of the incarnation of God becoming one of us. And there is so much to this topic and so much more to this conversation right after the break. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Let's explore those implications. We've been talking with Joe Heschmeyer today. He's a staff apologist at Catholic Answers, talking about the incarnation of God becoming man in Jesus Christ uh, and, and all that that means. So now let's look at the implications, Joe. Let's take a step back and say, what one, what does it matter that Jesus was God becoming man? We've talked some about that, but let's two, and I think maybe spend some more time on this. What are the implications of us having a solid Christology uh, and a Catholic Christology as opposed to those earliest four centuries of maybe some Christological controversies uh, that we see pop back up from time to time? What are the implications of those and how how do we live out that that Catholic Christology properly.
1: Yeah. I mean, in a way, there are all of these debates about proper Christology that come down to, we are obsessed with the incarnation and getting right what it means for God to be truly God and truly man. Now, it's very easy for Christians to say, I believe Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And that's great. That's a very good starting place. Well done. But then once you say, okay, what does that mean? Uh, for instance, does he have a human soul? Uh, does he have one divine will or two wills, one divine and one human? Does he have one divine nature? Does he have two natures, one divine and one human? Does he have a blended half divine, half human nature? Does he have a blended half divine, half human? will? that's where you hit the deeper kind of waters very, very quickly.
0: Well, and let's stop here for just a moment because to modern ears, and even to some ancient ears at the time, those don't sound like different questions, right? Yeah. What's the difference between the will and the soul, and the nature and the and the will? And I thought we just answered this question <laughs> yeah. at the last council. How are we doing this again?
1: Right. right. No, it's, it's a it's a really good point because I mean, in in a way. There's another operating principle, which we haven't explicitly said, but we're saying the church fathers are very fond of saying what isn't assumed isn't redeemed. That like what Christ doesn't take to himself in the incarnation is not something that he's come to save. And so we don't believe all dogs go to heaven because Christ doesn't become a dog. Uh, We do believe that Christ takes on our full humanity, mind, body, Uh, with a human soul, with a human will. uh, And that it's really important and and with a human nature. it's really important to get these things right, because if he doesn't have those things, then those aren't part of this great incarnational exchange that you were talking about uh, before the break. That, you know, it's those things that we find in Christ that he's taken to himself and transformed and united in this human to spiritual or human to divine sort of way that's the, the transformation. And so anything that's not a part of that is kind of left out of the equation. So it becomes really important if you if you take that idea seriously to say, okay, what all has he redeemed? What all has he taken to himself? And so that's one major reason to worry about it because there's like some salvific implications for it. Uh, two, there's some important anthropological ones. What does it mean to be human? Mm-hmm. You know, like think about the phrase like uh, to err is human. Or to sin is human. That's a terrible understanding of humanity. It's like, no, it's not. Because otherwise you're going to say Jesus isn't fully human. That or, sin or, is, is intrinsic to our nature.
0: Go and even more, even more than that, that that God created sin because he created yeah. humanity. Um, I, I get this associated with the questions about the the immaculate conception of Mary, which we just celebrated, yeah. uh, <clears throat> saying that, well, um, how are you, you're making... Mary like God, if you say that she doesn't have original sin. I'm like, no, we're saying that God's making her like Eve, who also right. didn't have original sin. Yeah,
1: there's something really I I want to say kind of funny about it, because the the concern is well meaning, but it's so misplaced. As if the only thing keeping us from being the infinite uncreated God is that we've sometimes sinned and we have original sin. Like, that's, that's the only gap. It's like, you gotta be joking me. The gap is infinitely larger than that. Like, even if you're Adam, even if you're Eve and you have no original sin, you have no actual sin yet, you are still infinitely removed for the grandeur and glory of God. You're still a creature and not the creator. And in fact, it's their failure to get that point that leads them to sin in the first place because they want their eyes to be open so they can be like God. They don't mm-hmm. appreciate the infinite chasm between creator and created. And so, yeah, you're right. A lot of the objections to Mary being without sin sound like the same kind of mistake that Adam and Eve are making in the garden when they get tricked by the devil into thinking, well, we're pretty close to being God. It's like, you're not. You're just not.
0: So, um, speaking of Mary, a lot of these Marian doctrines that we have are because of these Christological discussions um, the fact that, that Mary was declared the Theotokos, the mother of God, the God-bearer, mm-hmm. is specifically because people were saying, well, uh, Mary bore Jesus and then, and then the divine took over Jesus at some later time. And, and so that whole discussion was to say that, no, the incarnation is from that very first moment uh, completely enmeshed together. And yeah, I'm probably there, there, using a heretical term there. Let's let's.
1: Well, no, I think I think that you're, you're doing a really good job of explaining. There's not some prior human person to the incarnation, so it's not that you have a human that then becomes also divine. Mm-hmm. It's you've got the second person of the Trinity who then also becomes a human. So Christ's humanity did not exist before the incarnation, and so there is no you know no Jesus who isn't Christ from the moment of his existence in the womb of Mary. That, like, from the moment you have the human Jesus of Nazareth, he is always and simultaneously the second person of the Holy Trinity. And if you don't understand that, uh, then you're missing out on, on a whole lot. And so, yeah, you're right. A lot of the uh, reason we care about Mary flows from having a good understanding of the Incarnation. And like you said, like, in response to historianism, is Mary the mother of God or is she just the mother of Christ? Because if you say she's not the mother of God, then you have to say her child isn't God. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that follows by analogy. Now you've denied Jesus's divinity. Now you're in trouble. Uh, or, you know, to take a, a different kind of approach with it, one of the kind of recurring images, uh, in addition to Mary as the new Eve, is Mary's the new Ark of the Covenant. But the Ark of the Covenant, what makes the Ark so amazing is that within it, you have the dwelling of the living God. And so... Mary, is she's carrying Jesus in her womb, you know, I've, I've heard um, certain Protestants say she's just a vessel, which is mm-hmm. such a, an impoverished sense of motherhood. Like, imagine, you know, writing your mom a Mother's Day card, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, I know you're just a vessel, but, you know, thanks for being a vessel. It's like, no, she's not Tupperware. She, you know, it's,
0: <laughs> right? That,
1: that's not what a mother is, even on a purely human level. Mm-hmm. And so much less so in the role of Mary. You know, to to just flesh this out, if you will. Uh, Nicely done. uh, Thank you. Uh, In John 6, Jesus says that he offers his flesh for the life of the world. And this is true on the cross and it's true in the Eucharist, but he's getting that flesh from somewhere. He's getting Mm -hmm. that flesh from someone. He's getting that flesh from Mary. And like once you take that part seriously, a real appreciation of the incarnation flows very naturally into a, a very serious appreciation Of Mary. That, you know, people say, well, what if Mary had said no to the angel Gabriel? You know, well, maybe he would have found somebody else, and we can hypothesize left and right. But the truth is, you wouldn't have the same incarnation. You know, if he's born in a different time, a different place, different genes, a different body, it just isn't Jesus of Nazareth as we know him. Uh, You know, and so what we worship, what we venerate, what we uh, treat as the absolute center of our lives. Jesus, we we do this in His humanity and His divinity united. That like you you don't say, well, I I acknowledge Jesus' humanity, but it's just a vessel for His divinity. That's what I care about. Like that that doesn't appreciate the incarnation. That doesn't make sense of this. Uh, you can't understand what's going on at Christmas. You can't understand what's going on on Good Friday without taking really seriously the what God is doing here miraculously in this, this divine human union.
0: The. Uh, the Christological controversies of the fourth century are never more than a couple of years away from us. Um, And and I bring that up because uh, maybe even trying to find the best way to say this Christmas time is a difficult time for a lot of people. Mm. Uh, There is, uh, there's loneliness, there's isolation, there are um, remembered traumas. There's some, uh, some difficulty in finding, the good in, in, in ourselves. Um, and of course going on to say that everything, every good and perfect gift is the, is a gift from God. Uh, but so much mental energy goes into wrestling with that question of what is the human person? Who am I? And do I matter? And you bring up that the incarnation is something that, that elevates human dignity, that we see the dignity of the human person more clearly when we see it in God becoming man. So I, I bring that up because growing up in the Protestant Church, there was a lot made of the letters of Paul, and of course, in the translations that we read it today, speaking of um, uh, the the flesh availeth us nothing, and 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 the spirit is life, and and talking about using the word flesh being bad and using the word, uh, you know, those who are born of the spirit being good, there's this tendency towards almost a Gnosticism saying the material world is bad and I'm being somehow kept back because of this flesh and I have to ignore the flesh and, and build up the spirit. But the incarnation tells us a different story it it redeems the flesh and, and it reminds us that when god created the world and and specifically when god created you he said it is good so how do we maybe inoculate ourselves against those christological heresies to move us to a place where we can have a proper understanding of who god is as human and therefore who we are
1: yeah, I think that's a really good question and really a good challenge. So, yeah, Jesus in John six sixty three has that line about the, the flesh profiting nothing, the spirit uh, being what matters. And it's easy to say, ah, okay. So everything you said before that about the flesh is, is just, that's all a metaphor, right? Because right before that, he also says that he offers his flesh for the life of the world, that he's going to save the world in his flesh. And that's not a metaphor for anything. Like, anyone who takes Good Friday seriously is like, well, no, he didn't die in some figurative, like, I literally just died right now kind of way. Like, no, no, he actually <laughs> died in the flesh. And, like, you have to take it in that way or you just don't have an orthodox understanding of of Jesus' death. Uh, leave aside kind of how the cross works, that the cross involves the physical death of Christ in the flesh and that this fleshly sacrifice that he offers is what saves us is, is really pivotal, really one oh one kind of Christianity. So how do we make sense then of like all this stuff Paul says about the spirit and the flesh? Well, to Paul, flesh is frequently used as a shorthand for humanity, not bodilyness. And St. Augustine points this out, and he gives a really clear example that if you look at Galatians five, when St. Paul is talking about the works of the flesh, they include enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissension, party spirit, and envy. Now, all of those are spiritual evils. None of those are actually bodily evils. And Augustine proves this by pointing out, you know, the Tefl is guilty of all of those, and he doesn't have a body. Mm -hmm. So clearly flesh doesn't mean body when Paul is using it in this way. Flesh means your unaided humanity, or like your attempt to run things as a creature apart from the creator. Like when you try to like live your life as a creature Apart from the creator, you are living the life of the flesh. And again, flesh there is a reference to you having been created, whereas God in spirit is uncreated. That's what's going on. This is about the distinction between created things and the uncreated god this is not about the distinction between bodies and souls or anything like that like he's so i think that's the, the major kind of thing to start with is we have some pretty clear indications that paul does not mean by flesh or by spirit what people think he means by flesh or by spirit and this is true in John's gospel as well. But in John 1, uh, John is very clear that the word became flesh. And he uses that word, sarks, flesh. He doesn't just say the word became a person of human nature or anything like that. He doesn't say uh the word became man. He says the word became flesh. Like he makes it really clear that Jesus takes on our bodilyness. He doesn't just take on our humanity in some abstracted kind of way. Uh, so Given that, I I think we have to say whatever you say about the goodness of the flesh should be something you can say about the goodness of Christ in the incarnation. Because if you just say the flesh is actually worthless, uh, then you have to say Jesus's incarnation was worthless. That like, oh, Christmas was a waste of his time. And and it doesn't work like that. Now, we can say the soul is higher than the body in some important way, that, you know, the needs of the soul are, are more important than the needs of the body. Uh, we can say that, you know, there's there's that sense. But it's really clear that Jesus doesn't just come to save souls. He comes to save humans, body and soul. Mm. I don't know, like that kind of understanding, once you get what's going on in the incarnation, that Jesus, it's really important to him to take our body and to take our soul to himself. It shows you what he's after. He's not just about saving our souls from our bodies. He's about bringing us body and soul to be with him forever.
0: Well, and... The, the incarnation, just as a final thought, is that that fulfillment of the promise he made all throughout the Old Testament, that you will be my people and I will be your God and I will dwell among you. And so here, even the name that we get for Jesus in the gospels, Emmanuel, means God yeah. with us. And so as we come towards this Christmas mystery, I, I encourage you all to, to meditate on that That word, Emmanuel, Mm -hmm. God with us, and recognize that in the incarnation, he restores all things to himself and puts himself in the room with you where you are. Yeah, very, very beautifully said. If I can
1: kind of respond to that or add to that, Um, St. Paul in Ephesians 1 talks about the church as the fullness of Christ's body uh, or the fullness of Christ's body like he uses that phrase, totus christos in the Latin, that the, the whole Christ is Jesus to head with the church's body. So there's one way in which Christ continues to be among us in the church. And then of course, in the Eucharist as well, um, that he fulfills that. I, I will be with you always mm-hmm. in a couple of different, really important ways. But to, I like to focus on that in, in light of the Emmanuel prophecy, because easy to miss this and say, Oh, Jesus is Emmanuel. Because once upon a time, he was with us, but he's not with us anymore. And it's like, no, 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 no. That's not the promise. The promise is not God was with us. The promise is God is with us. And he is with us in the incarnation. He is with us in a a bodily kind of form, that he is bodily present in the Eucharist and in some strange way, even in the church. Uh, That's really pivotal to Jesus actually being Emmanuel. If it just meant that God is spiritually present with his people, well, in some way he was already spiritually present with his people. Something more is being offered here. And that something more in one word is the incarnation.
0: We've been talking today with Joe Heschmeyer, staff apologist over at Catholic Answers. He blogs and podcasts under the title Shameless Popery. Joe, it's always a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure.
0: If you missed any part of my conversation today, well, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived. Uh, If you want to listen to it again or share it with your friends on social media, you can find it over at OutsideTheWalls.com. And as I mentioned, uh, at the very beginning of the show, this was the 21st episode that we have aired as in conversation with Joe Heschmeyer. You can find all of those archived episodes by going to the guest list, scrolling down until you find his name, clicking that, and then looking through. We've talked with him uh, about Mary and feast days. We've talked about uh, Advent uh, as, as Eschaton. There's all kinds of, of really engaging content that you can find there in those archives. Not only that, but there's extra segments each and every week. We've got several extra segments with Joe uh, available to all of those who support the show through Patreon. In fact, some of those Earlier extra segments are now available to everyone. So just while you're there, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link. You can look through, find some of those older ones. But the brand new segments are always available, uh, first and foremost, to those who are part of our Patreon support community. Just in gratitude for all the work they do to help keep us on the air, we record those extra segments and make them available. So go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and see if that's something that you might like to be a part of. Now let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings today from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching by putting the magisterium at your fingertips, linking Scripture to the tradition of the church, magisterial documents, biblical commentaries, so much more. And you can learn more at verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Matthew Which means God is with us. When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took her as his wife. That reading again comes from the Gospel of Matthew. And one of the things that really stands out to me about these narrations of the nativity of Jesus, both the ones that speak from Mary's point of view with the Annunciation and this here where we hear Matthew telling Joseph's side of the story. I'm struck by the fact of how quickly both Mary and Joseph received a word from God in different ways and believed it to be God and acted accordingly. And this speaks of something uh, significant. You know, we hear these stories and and we— we look at their faith, and we just kind of take them as, well, this happened, and this, and then this next thing happened, and we, we take it kind of as a portion of a story. But there's more to this story. There's backstory before we get to this place. One of the things that we should be aware of and take really strong note of is that they believed—they uh, were used to hearing the voice of God. They had gotten to a place where they could hear— and believe what they heard. So for Mary, obviously, you've got an angel standing in front of you. I mean, that's a big deal. But Joseph is hearing this in a dream. Joseph hears this in a dream and still knows it to be God because he had already cultivated that relationship with God. He was in a place where he knew that God was trustworthy, and so he was able to trust God with very big and frightening things. And so for us, as we move towards this celebration of Christmas, let us take the time to cultivate that relationship with God so that when he invites us into this mystery, when he invites us into participation in this mystery, we're able to say, let it be done to me according to thy word. We're able to say, we wake up and we do as the angel of the Lord commanded us. Because we are invited into this divine mystery uh, in our present day. We are, as the body of Christ, continuing to be that incarnation to the world, just as God continues to be incarnate to us. So let's let's do that. Let's find a way. Let's make it to the extra masses. Let's spend some time in adoration. Let's spend some time in meditation, becoming accustomed to the voice of God, so that when he speaks— we can give our fiat. Our reading from Church History today comes from a letter by St. Leo the Great on the Incarnation, and he says this, To speak of our Lord, the Son of the Blessed Virgin Mary, as true and perfect man, is of no value to us if we do not believe that he is descended from the line of ancestors set out in the gospel. Matthew's gospel begins by setting out the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham, and then traces his human descent by bringing his ancestral line down to his mother's husband, Joseph. On the other hand, Luke traces his parentage backwards, step by step, to the actual father of mankind to show that both the first and the last Adam share the same nature. No doubt the Son of God in His omnipotence could have taught and sanctified men by appearing to them in a semblance of human form as He did to the patriarchs and prophets. When, for instance, He engaged in a wrestling contest or entered into a conversation with them or when He accepted their hospitality and even ate the food they set before Him. But these appearances were only types signs that mysteriously foretold the coming of one who would take a true human nature from the stock of the patriarchs who had gone before him. No mere figure then fulfilled the mystery of our reconciliation with God, ordained from all eternity. The Holy Spirit had not yet come upon the Virgin, nor had the power of the Most High overshadowed her so that With her spotless womb, wisdom might build itself a house and the word become flesh. The divine nature and the nature of a servant were to be united in one person so that the creator of time might be born in time and he through whom all things were made might be brought forth in their midst. For unless the new man by being made in the likeness of sinful humanity, had taken on himself the nature of our first parents, unless he had stooped to be one in substance with his mother while sharing the father's substance and being alone free from sin united our nature to his, the whole human race would still be held captive under the dominion of Satan. The conqueror's victory would have profited us nothing if the battle had been fought outside our human condition. But through this wonderful blending, the mystery of new birth shone upon us, so that through the same Spirit by whom Christ was conceived and brought forth, we too might be born again in a spiritual birth. And in consequence, the evangelist declares the faithful to have been born not of blood, nor of the desire of the flesh, Nor of the will of man, but of God. That reading comes from a a letter. That reading comes from a letter by St. Leo the Great, Pope. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show was brought to you by Lexi and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link to learn more and join their numbers. And until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.